Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Hi everyone, and welcome to Cults and Crime, a true crime podcast covering cults, crime, and everything in between. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie. And I'm your other host, Nicole. So this week is a crime week. Nicole, what are we talking about? So last week I covered a more lesser known case, but still really important one. This one I wanted to touch on something that my family has personal experience with because we grew up in the same county as these murders were committed. I'm talking about the case of the Zodiac murderer. In the winter of 1968, just five days before Christmas, David Farday, who was 17 at the time, took Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16, out on their very first date. David promising her dad he'd have her home just before 11 p.m. They told Betty's dad they were planning on attending a Christmas concert at the local church, but like teens do, they decided to stop at a friend's house instead. They did spend some time there hanging out, but they both got hungry and decided to grab food at a local restaurant. And by all accounts, they were having a great time. What restaurant was it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really need to know because I'm hungry. Really? I'm starving. <laughs> the date must have been going well because the couple decided to head to a well-known lover, lover's lane. Why can't I say lover's lane? What the hell's wrong with me? This lover's lane was on a gravel turnout on Lake Herman Road, just at Lake, just by Lake Herman itself. Okay, I know where that is. Do you? No. Content. <laughs> <laughs> Those extra one second is going to add up. Shortly after 11 p.m., a motorcyclist driving past the lover's lane noticed two lifeless bodies on the side of the road. Did he stop? Yes, he did stop. Um, from what expert theorized, that while the couple was parked, another vehicle pulled alongside the car. The killer then exited his vehicle and walked towards the couple where they believed he ordered them to out a gunpoint. Betty exited first, but while David was exiting the car, he was shot in the head point blank. And while Betty was attempting to run away, she was shot in the back 28 feet from the car. Oh, wow. This wasn't the end, but the beginning of the brutal murders that were going to occur. Just a little over six months later in Vallejo, California, where Darlene Farron, 22, had picked up her good friend Michael... Margay and pulled into the parking lot of Blue Rock Spring Park just in Vallejo. This park, by the way, was only five miles away from Herman Road where the first murders occurred. See, and I do know where that is. Really? How? Well, whenever when I worked at Six Flags? <laughs> yes. So a friend of mine took me down that road because it's apparently a quote quote paranormal spot. So if you park your car on this hill, and you put it in neutral, the car will go up the hill instead of down the hill. So did you do that with your friend? Yeah, and it actually happened. Oh, that's scary. I think it's just some sort of like weird trick of the eyes. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't know either. So why were you even on that road other than to check out the paranormal activity? We are going to the Zodiac Shack. Not the one in Vacaville, right? No, no, no. The one in... So you guys probably want to understand this. So I'm just going to give a little bit of background before I go off into what a Zodiac Shack is. Obviously around here, we all grew up knowing what the stories were. And anytime there's an abandoned barn or building, the kids dub it the Zodiac Shack. 
and that's just kind of where kids go to creep themselves out. Yeah, I can't say I haven't gone several times to the one in Vacaville. I have never been to the one in Fairfield. Is it creepier than the one in Vacaville, Jamie? No, the one in Vacaville is way creepier. It's also on private property, so viewers don't go because you might get shot. Well, we're not giving them the address. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I you won't. could probably Google, Google that, right? No, you can't Google quote quote Zodiac Shack and they're gonna show up the exact barn we're talking about. That's insane. I don't know you. I don't know. I guess I just thought you could. Well, our older sister Jolinda really did almost get shot up there for trespassing. So, if you know where it is, don't go up there. We're not recommending it at all. We are a family of true crime and paranormal enthusiasts. Bunch of freaking weirdos over here, guys. All right, Jamie. So I want you to think about that park you visited and think about being there late at night. Well, yeah, it's it's pretty creepy. Yeah, because that was the case for Darlene and Michael. As the best friends were hanging out in Darlene's car, just after midnight, a car pulled into the very same parking lot and immediately left. Shortly after, the very same car pulled into the parking lot again. This time, the car parked. A man got out with a flashlight in one hand and a 9mm lugger in the other. And with the flashlight pointed at the couple, the suspect unloaded a total of five shots into Darlene and Michael. Their murderer walked away but came back when he heard the gasp and labored breathing from Michael when he returned and shot Michael an additional two times, before returning to his car and driving off. The very next day, Vallejo Police Department received a phone call, and this phone call was from the man. This man not only called and claimed he was responsible for the murders of Darlene and Michael, but he also stated he was the one who murdered Betty and Devin. Now, the police were able to track the phone calls to a payphone at a gas station, but this guy, and this gas station was creepy close to Darlene's house. I'm talking about three-tenths of a mile and only a few blocks from police station. So how did they know that the car went to the parking lot, left, and came back? Well, that's because there was a survivor. While Darlene was pronounced dead at the hospital, Michael survived. He had been shot multiple times in the jaw, shoulder, and leg. Was he able to identify who shot him? No, but he was able to give a description to the police. Let me guess. White male. Well, yes. <laughs> Michael estimated his attacker to be a white male around 26 to 30, 5'8", with curly, light hair, between 195 to 200 pounds. So an average white man. Well, no, for being 5'8", I think 200 pounds is overweight. I guess, but like guys are weigh a lot. Well, look at Kyle, my fiance. Hi, babe. Well- is but Kyle here? No, he's not here. I was just, you know, shout out to my babe. But um, he's six four and he's two hundred and ten pounds. Well, so yeah, if someone's five eight. That's well, even Tori's not, you know. Yeah, but Tori's five. So if Tori's five ten. What is Tori weigh? Tori's six foot. Oh, sure he is. He is. <laughs> All right. So how much does he weigh? He weighs just like at two hundred pounds. Yeah, so imagine two less inches, you know. So you're a bit tubby. Yeah, big, he's a bigger boy. I, I would say he's, like, average looking. Yeah. And that's the one thing that's been consistent with every description of the Zodiac Killer, because there's been several, is, you know, the height always ranges, but they always say he's stocky, like he's a bigger guy. Yeah. Okay. Just a short month after the murder of Darlene and attempted murder of David... Three letters were delivered to large newspapers around Asuano County. These letters contained almost identical messages and contents. 
messages gave details about the case that had not been given out to police in newspapers around, describing the murder victims, the gun being used, and the number of shots fired. And inside the letter, it included one-third of a 408-syllable cryptograph. The killer stated that if anyone was able to interpret the cryptogram, they would learn his identity. So for anybody that doesn't know what a cryptogram is, it's basically a whole bunch of symbols that would coincide with letters or phrases. And it's good for secret messages, and uh, the Nazis used it in the World War. Oh, so it's like some super secret spy shit. It's exactly like some super super secret spy shit. Is that hard to say, or is it not hard to say? (laughs) Everyone right now start saying it. Super secret spy shit. Super secret spy shit. (laughs) The killer had went on to man the letters and the cryptogram itself be placed on the front page of the three newspapers that received him. And if his demands were not met, he would, and I quote, cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend, end quote. The papers informed law enforcement and were eventually placed on all the front pages. However, one newspaper posted alongside the cryptogram a quote from Vallejo's police chief, Jack E. Stitz, uh, saying, we're not satisfied the letters were written by the murderer and requested the writer send a second letter with more facts to prove his identity. I'm assuming this angered the murderer because he wrote another letter. This time he addressed the note, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. This would be the first time the killer used the name Zodiac. The letter was a response to Chief Shit, Shit, Stitz. Sorry guys, I can't pronounce names well. It's in our disclaimer. Yes, it is. (laughs) But this is a response to the Chief's request for more details that he would prove who the killer was. The Zodiac included details about the murders, which had not been released to the public, as well as a message to police that when they cracked that when they cracked the code, they would have me. He named himself? Yeah, he did name himself. This ended up making national news, and the cryptograph was posted all over the country, offering a reward for anybody who cracked the code. Everyone from teachers to scientists attempted to crack the code, but no one could. That is until a couple in Salinas who loved crossword puzzles figured it out. The misspelling of the message would read, and I'll quote it, this time trying to be as accurate as possible. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because men is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill sometimes gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than giving your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and I will have killed well become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or top my collection of slaves for my afterlife. End quote. He did strike again. This type it was at Lake Berryessa, which by the way is still a really popular place for high schoolers to hang out till this day. I can't tell you how many times me and Jamie have gone to the lake. Yeah, high schoolers after high schoolers. Super popular area in Solano County to go to. Pacifica Union College students, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, were picnicking at Lake Berryessa when they were approached by a man. This man was 5'11", white, and around 170 pounds, with combed, greasy brown hair. This man had on a black, almost like a medical executioner hood on it, with a clip-on glass over the eye holes would be. To make things even creepier, on his chest, he had a symbol. This symbol was a cross with a circle. Like a bullseye? Yeah, almost like a crosshairs, I would say. 
Now, this man did claim to be an escaped convent on the run and was holding them at gunpoint to steal their car because he said his is overheated. He instructed Cecile to tie up Brian. Brian had thought that it was an odd robbery until the murderer drew a knife and stabbed both Brian and Cecilia repeatedly. Brian suffered six stab wounds while Cecilia suffered a total of 10. The murderer then hiked up to Brian's car where with a black felt tip pen drew the cross and circle symbol as well as Vallejo, 12, 20, 68, 7, 4, 69, September 27, 69, 630 by knife. Well, what is that supposed to mean? Those are the coordinates of the murder of Darlene and David in Vallejo. Later on that day, Napa County Sheriff's received a phone call. This phone call was from a payphone to report the murder. Just minutes later, the phone was found still off the hook at the car wash just on Main Street, Napa, by a reporter. And this was only a few blocks away from the police station. Were they able to get any prints or maybe video from the gas station? So, no video, but detectives were able to lift a single wet palm print from the phone. This, however, till this day has not been found to have a match. Wet palm print? Wet. Why, it's, why was it wet? I have no idea. Why but, specifically did they say wet? I'm not sure, but it's one of those things that in every report I read, they state wet palm print. What is the significance of that? I wonder if it has something to do with maybe the distortion to the palm print. Maybe it's not as good of a match because it was wet. That makes sense. I think it was more of like a touch DNA kind of thing because DNA is better when it's wet. It's better to grab DNA when it's wet. Oh, I did not know that. When I went to CrimeCon, they had a wet vac there for collecting DNA. That baby was sweet. Was it? Oh. So Jane went to CrimeCon in New Orleans and I'm constantly jealous. The guy let me use it. I think he thought that I was like a responsible adult. What did you use it on? How, okay, just tell me the whole story. No. Okay, so this guy, he had a booth at CrimeCon. I walk up. I'm like, so what's your booth about? And he's like, oh, I have a new DNA collection device. I'm like, please tell me more. Like very professional. <laughs> professional. <And he's> like, <laughs> It's a wet vac, so what it does is it basically it sprays water into the place you're connecting, you're collecting from, collects that water with the DNA, and the whole process is completely sterile because the water goes in and it doesn't reuse the water. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that way you test that entire sample of like the water, and it's like, oh. And it puts it in a little tube too, so it's not like a whole big, huge thing. So you can take small samples at a time. Oh, interesting. It was amazing. So later on in the podcast, I will have to tell you that they are using that in, the, in this case. Both teens were located by a nearby fisherman and were taken to the hospital. Cecilia fell into a coma and was unable to regain consciousness, but Brian did survive and was able to tell a story to local police. Two weeks later in San Francisco, a passenger entered the cab of Paul Stein and asked to be taken to Washington and Maple Street. I'm not really sure why they actually drove little past it, but that was where Paul was shot once in the head with a 9mm gun. The murderer then exited the vehicle and was spotted by three teenagers who reported the crime as it happened, wiping down the cab before simply walking away. A couple blocks away, responding officer Don Folk spoke very shortly with a white man walking up to a home. 
This conversation only lasted a minute or so, so the officer described the man to be 35 to 45 years old, but the teen said the murderer was between 20 and 30 to around 5'8 in height. This is odd because the dispatchers had told the police to look for a black man while the teen stated the guy was white, and I can't find anything that would explain that. Oh, I have a few explanations, but you're not going to like them. <laughs> oh, God. These three teens were able to meet with a sketch artist to create a picture of the killer. The police investigated over 2,500 suspects over a period of years, but were unable to have a solid lead. That is until another letter from the Zodiac Killer emerged. This time it contained a piece of Paul's shirt. Paul is the murder victim in the cab. In this letter, he threatened to kill kids on a school bus by shooting the front tires out one by one, picking the kids off as they come bouncing out. I remember mom talking about that. Yeah, I told her we were going to be doing the podcast on the Zodiac Killer, and she told me that when she was little, that they had armed guards on the school bus. Then on the same day, Oakland police received a call from a man claiming to be the Zodiac Killer and demanding two prominent lawyers be placed in the local television show hosted by Jim Dunbar. One of the lawyers, Melvin Belly, did go on the show and ask viewers to keep the line open for the Zodiac murderer. Time passed, and finally a ring. This man would call several times, claiming that his name was Sam and he was the Zodiac murderer, and requested Melvin meet him in Daly City. Melvin did show up, but he was never met by the suspect. One month later, a letter was received in the mail that contained another cryptogram. This one is still undecided, and I'm sure that with a quick Google search, anybody can look at it, and maybe someone could still solve it. Three more weeks went by before a seven-page letter was mailed in the letter, the Zodiac murder mentioned he was stopped by two policemen that spooked him when he was just three minutes after the murder of Paul. Oh. It is wildly thought out the man that the police officer had stopped and talked to for a few short minutes is the Zodiac killer. There are several suspects that have come up throughout the years. One of them was highlighted in a documentary called The Hunt for the Zodiac Killer, and his name is Ross Sullivan. Ross, like Ross from Friends? Yes, just like Ross from Friends. He was born in 1941, which would make him 76 if he was still alive. Most of the blogs do speculate that he is dead. And well, that yeah, he died. 76 is old. Well, they claim so they claimed he died in 77. What? They don't know where this Ross Sullivan is? So that's why I'm saying blogs, because I try to figure out where he was currently. And just a couple of the blogs that I'd read speculated that he died in 1977. With, I'm assuming, zero information to back that up. Exactly. Now Ross is linked to a murder that has a lot of similarities to the Zodiac murders. And it's speculated that this is the very first murder the Zodiac killer committed. If Ross is the one who committed it. If Ross committed it and if Ross is the Zodiac killer. So what are the similarities? Well, let me go ahead and just talk a little about the murder itself first, okay? Mm-hmm. Cherry Bates was just 18 years old in 1966. She was living with her father at the time and attending Riverside City College in California. The day of her murder, she left a letter to her father that she was going to the library and she'd be back soon, which she did very often. The next morning, her Volkswagen bug was found in the library's parking lot, but she wasn't there. It wasn't long before her body was found nearby in between two abandoned buildings, her throat cut, and with several other stab wounds. 
At the scene of the crime, they found a man's watch, a footprint of an army boot, plus hair and blood on Sherry's hands. Several weeks later, the local newspaper received a typewritten letter with the title confession. In the letter, he wrote, and I quote, Miss Bates is stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. The letter was signed with a symbol similar to a Z. Sullivan himself worked at a library, the same library that Sherry was going to the day she was murdered, and also attended the same college. Sullivan himself was often seen wearing combat boots and a camo jacket. He was 6'2 and over 200 pound frame. So what I found interesting is in college, he studied cryptographs and even did a, theory on, a thesis on it. And he moved to from Southern California to Northern California to uh, Santa Cruz itself just months before the murder started happening here. Okay, so this timeline that matches up. Yeah, and for anybody that doesn't live in California, Santa Cruz is like a two-hour drive maximum to where these murders occurred. So to get into why they think that he's the murder suspect, you know, again, he moved around the same time. He wrote a letter explaining his murders. But what I found for me is like good evidence is he misspells the same things in the letter about the murder of the girl in Southern California as he does in the cryptographs. That is really interesting. Yeah, as well as settling cryptology. So he was never in the military at all. And a lot of people do think that the Zodiac Killer was in the military in some fashion. But this guy did walk around in combat boots and in a jacket, an, an army jacket. So I'm wondering if he was some kind of enthusiast. What type of enthusiast? Well, like an army enthusiast. You remember those kids that like, you know, wanted to join the Navy super bad in high school and they wore the camo jackets and stuff? Yeah, and the combat boots and dog yeah. tags. Yeah, I'm thinking it's very similar to that. But of course, they've never been able to solve the Zodiac murders. So in that documentary I talked about earlier, they did take her pants, who had a bloody handprint on it, and they used that wet back on it to get the DNA of the killer. So even with the DNA evidence they found, they haven't been able to find the killer. But I was hoping they put it on one of those like 23andMe sites with the DNA. Yeah, that'd be cool. If you can find like a brother or a sister or something, maybe a cousin. Well, a lot of crimes have been getting solved that way. Yeah, that's how they got the Green River Killer. Exactly. Like, why can't they use it on this case? Or just run it in a traditional means. Yeah, or run it in traditional means. Exactly. But without figuring out who the DNA belongs to, it's all speculation on who's the murderer. And there's not a lot of new information out there. Now, there were several other suspects in the murders and even a bombing that occurred that was somehow tied to the Zodiac Killer and several other postcards and letters were mailed out. But again, this is an unsolved murder case. The man could be walking the streets of San Francisco, looking and waiting to add his collection of victims. It's so crazy to think this happened, you know, places we go, places I've been to. Yeah, well, I still live in Solano County. You know, I've been, I go to Vallejo and I go to San Francisco and I've been to Napa Valley and I go to Lake all the time. So to think that this guy's still walking around or still has the potential to walk around is creepy. But enough about crime. Next Monday, we'll have a brand new episode for you guys, and this time it's going to be out of cult. Jamie, what cult are you covering next week? Next week, I'm covering Rajneesh Param, a cult that would eventually lead to the largest bioterrorist attack in the U.S., poisoning over 750 people.
Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.